I'm Zion, and I'm 13 years old, and I'm very into stuff like fashion, special effects makeup, horror movies, and I feel like I belong someplace that is warm, that has a lot of nice people, that has a lot of feeling of excitement for me. Someplace like Los Angeles. That's the life for me. Welcome back to HBO's Between the World and Me podcast. I'm your host, Susan Kilechi Watson. On today's episode, we're going to continue to explore, unpack, and extend the conversation between the world and HBO's Between the World and Me. In addition to the voices appearing in the film, we'll also be joined by Adrian Marie Brown, Kimberly Nicole Foster, Sonia Renee Taylor, and Kalita Garcia Rawls. You'll also be hearing my section of the film today. This is episode two, The Mecca. There's an overall sense of purpose. There was a feeling of joy also in creating it because I th- when you get to really express yourself, regardless of the subject matter, there's something that's very satisfying about it. Um, so it was very fulfilling to do. And just to watch the artistry of, of so many brilliant artists that we got to gather with us to do this, to be able to witness that and, and everyone else's passion and us all being fueled by by the same by the same things, you know, we were fueled by the injustices and fueled by wanting to show who we are as a culture and its joys and its you know um, complexities, all the ups and downs, and getting an opportunity to do that. Um, there's so much trust, you know. I think that's the main thing is that there was just. There was just trust everywhere. T, our nickname for you is MC. And that's not for hip hop, but it's for moral code. Shout out to Oni Tara. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to Oni Tara Nelson of Free the Land Collective. That's a little crew. (laughs) But... It's moral code because you know what it is? I mean, there's such um, a pragmatism about you and um, and um, but also a measured morality. You know, there is right and there is wrong and there are some it it is black and it is white. Right. There's there's a right and a wrong. um, And there's huge like nobility in that. Um, you know, when, you know, even even just the other day, we were trying to figure out if we're all going to hang out. You were like coronavirus but we were like but uh but but let's just think about you were like coronavirus y'all like there's there's right and there's wrong they say we need to stay inside so there's there's um there's an absoluteness about you that i really respect where everyone can be flip-flopping you know on a full-on spectrum um and there's there's complete clarity and absoluteness that i feel is actually very centering um to be around you is very centering. And, 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 and therefore, even just in your writing, there, there's this very clarity of, of, of your point of view, of where you're going. And even when you are uncertain where you're going, you are clear in that uncertainty. So when I wrote Between the World and Me, it's a very intimate book. And 
you know, working working with my editor, Chris Jackson, like that was what he wanted. You know, like he has this like whole theory that, you know, it should be a very, the reader should be having this intimate experience. They should feel like it's only you or actually only them and that mm. book in the room. Mm. And that and that book is a, is, a, is, a, is a singular world. It's kind of why I love books. You know what I mean? In a world where everything is interconnected, you know, books are like these pocket universes where it's just the reader and mm. they're seeing what they see and that's it. And so... As a writer from that part, I could only write from the deepest part of me, right? And the part that had most experience, right? And so, like, for me, that was, you know, my relationship as a, you know, black father, black man with my black male son, you know, young boy growing up. And that was, you know, the angle. And so, you know, obviously some of the pushback was, you know, we really are tired of seeing the black experience just from a black, you know, man's experience. And, you know, on the one hand, I, you know, I was like, I get that. But I don't, like, there's nothing else I can write, you know? And, and people would ask, they would say, you know, well, if you had a daughter, what would you write? I, like, I have no idea what I would write if I have a daughter. Because it really comes literally out of, you know, how I've lived and how and my lived experience with my son. But if you look at the film, the film says, dear son, dear daughter, dear nephew, dear cousin. You know what I'm saying? It goes in all of these other places. And that's what I mean about, like opening yourself up because I can't do that. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? I can't read like like when Angela Davis takes control of that text, it's it's not me anymore. Do you you understand? Like that's a different relationship. That's not now I may have written the words, but it's not about that. You know what I'm saying? When Aretha Franklin sends sings respect, it's different. It don't matter who wrote respect. It's a different song. You can't say, well, that person wrote the way. It's not the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the same thing. And so one of the cool things was, you know, how the book really opened up. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And, you know, while maintaining some sense of intimacy, it didn't have the same degree of smallness that, you know, Between the World and Me necessarily had. You know, it's that's so interesting you said that because... um, you know, I, I I think that was a big part of the even the early conversation. I remember, you know, reading and just personally didn't know what to do with all those emotions, you know, and reading it and personally feeling like, you know, I didn't have a kid at the time, but obviously, personally, that was little Samari you were talking about, right? That was, you know, so, so personally feeling time. affected. And, but also knowing that, you know, that there were so many entry points, you put you put language together that um, so many people wanted to articulate, but couldn't, but didn't have just the quite right words to say um, that articulated their own personal experience. And that's what I think the, that was so powerful about the book, um, you know, and the interpretation right now of, of having all of these varying types of voices um, from elders to varying generational voices from Angela Davis to Jarrell Jerome, you know, mm-hmm. to, um, you know, varying identities to families so that they could put their own on it, right? They can put their own personal um, kind of journey on it. Um, you know, Joe Morton, he, he was one of the first early in the stage. I remember I told you who was like, I have to do this, you know, because he was, he as a father was so personally affected, you know, and then, and then I remember getting calls from like other um like when people started really hearing about the project, you know, other um, women activists who were like, I want to be in the conversation. Like, how can I, you know, and, 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 and the work, the work actually, I think with specificity, you reach universality, 
and and that's the power you know and that's been the power of your words and i think um and and hopefully i mean the interest visually that's that visual representation that this is a universal um, you know, this is a universal story. And I remember even in our sound mix, um, our sound mix um, at Final Frame, our sound mixer, he's, you know, white father. There's a scene and a moment every single time. And we were working on this for three days mixing. You would just see him just crying, wow. just emotionally. He was, you know, because again, this is as a father, the, I, the idea of protecting your child is his experience too. So, you know, there's, it's just, it was, it's just been really powerful seeing how the relation put to point. And then also thinking about the body and protecting the body and, you know, having activists like Janet Mock and what that means from the relationship to her body, MJ Rodriguez, a relationship to her body and the protection of the black body. What does that mean for trans identity? Um, there's a lot of relationship points. My name is Kalita Garcia Rawls. I have four images or four paintings that are a part of Between in the World and Me. The first painting that um, I have here, Lost in the Shuffle. Um, when, I, when I painted this piece, I was thinking I was lost in the names. The repetition of Black people being killed by the hands of the police. I mean, police uh, that took an oath to protect us. And um, it hurts. I guess what hurts the most is that I can't even remember the names anymore. There's just so many. And it feels like they run into each other, like another event, another event, like a rotation um, that I couldn't, or loop, a loop that I couldn't get out of. And I thought of that. And uh, I just wanted to paint that feeling, that moment. Another painting that is in this is Radiating My Sovereignty. Uh, when I painted this, I wanted the figure, the subject, to exude calm among chaotic waters. She's graceful and peaceful, even though there's the water looks deep and dark in certain areas. And I did include some obscured topographical mapping um, in certain parts of her body where violence has happened to young black girls, but I, this doesn't weigh down her spirit, nor does it complete her identity. You know, she radiates, and this is just a part of the landscape of her life, that this has happened to her and what happens to a lot of young black girls today. Welcome back to our amazing, like, I keep using this word amazing because it just feels accurate to me, conversation around HBO's Between the World and Me. I'm Nolika Anderson-Ratway, and I have the pleasure of being back in conversation with Sonia Renee Taylor, Adrian Marie Brown, and Kimberly Nicole Foster. One of the moments that really moved me, like, like just moved my body, moved my energy, moved my soul, was hearing Susan Kalechi Watson walking on the yard. Oh, yes. Uh, Howard University yes. stand up yes. 
and like talk about what it is to feel the sense of belonging and connection and like um, like wonder. I was admitted to Howard University, but formed and shaped by the Mecca. Now these institutions are related, but not the same. Howard University is an institution of higher education concerned with the LSAT, magna cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, the Mecca is a machine crafted to capture and concentrate the dark energies of all African peoples and inject them directly into the student body. The history, the location, the alumni, the Mecca, crossroads of the black diaspora. Out on the yard, the communal green space in the center of campus where the students gathered, I saw everything I knew of my black self multiplied into seemingly endless variations. I take a break from my studies, come out to the yard and I'd imagine Malcolm in his cell studying the books. I felt bound by my ignorance, by the questions that I hadn't yet understood. I wanted to pursue things, to know things. The pursuit of knowing was freedom to me. I'm obligated, I'm obligated to throw a little bit of shade because it's the other HU, because I graduated from Hampton. So I'm gonna have to give them an I'm, I'm gonna have to give I'm Howard so its excited. appropriate shade. Okay. The this other is, this HU. This is my life. This is my okay. life. This is my, we can my go. life. This is my life. I love it. I love it. I, I love to have you here with us. I love you have have you here with us. Um but what was so amazing about what she was speaking to was yes, Howard, the pl a place that you know I I think Regardless if you went there or didn't go, there's something, even before I went there, there was something about it. You know, there's something about it. Um, but even bigger than that, the multitude of ways in which we get to express our Black identity and also this, like, mm -hmm. what does it feel, those that moment where you feel this, like, this enormous sense of, like, belonging. Like, there's a place for me, especially coming off of this, like, having this dream of, of recognizing what this American dream is and like that it's not for me. So um, I wanted to know like, when did you first feel like that sense of like belonging? When, when, like, when did you have those moments of, I might not have be able to get that, but this right here, this is where it's at. This is what I want. Um, so Sonia, would you start us off and tell us about when and where you felt? Um, it's been really beautiful that across my life, I've had different locations where I've got to experience that. Um, so in high school, my bestie, uh, Alicia, who we became best friends when we were 10 years old. And then in ninth grade, um, I changed schools and I met two other girls, Jamie and Monique. And then I introduced them to Alicia. And so in ninth grade, we just became a little a foursome of, of ridiculous <laughs> black teenage, couldn't tell us nothing, crop tops, Daisy Dukes, singing group, doing the most. We were doing the most. <laughs> we were, you could not tell us nothing. We were doing the most. And I felt so known by them. And I still do, you know, we 30 years in this and I'm so known by them. When I think about what does it mean you know, in all of my many transformations, what does it mean for people who know like yes. source Sonia, like Sonia, Sonia mm -hmm. at the beginning. Um, and they, and they are the keepers of the archive of me in that way. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful to have that. And so that's, that's one of those first places where I just felt this deep sense of belonging. Um, 
my time at my time at uh, my performing arts school, uh, Pittsburgh High School for Creative and Performing Arts, where, you know, much like Adrian, you talked about earlier, was like it was okay to be different. It was okay to be the weird kid. It was okay to be nerdy and to sing you know, in the lunchroom about your grilled cheese sandwich. And it was okay. <laughs> it was okay to just be doing monologues out of nowhere. Like it, all of that was all right. And it was, and I felt so affirmed because all of that was who I had always been. You know, I used to tell people like I came out of my mother's womb with jazz hands, which was very uncomfortable for her. Like <laughs> and I came out like I need to be on a stage. And it was cool to find a place where that was wanted and welcomed. Mm. Um, and, and then in, in sort of this iteration of my life right now, where I am, I am finding that inside of, um, and, and I'm finding that inside of shared sort of, uh, intellectual and, you know, liberation space. Like I'm, I'm finding it here. I'm fine. I like, I find that community and that connection inside Kimberly's work, mm-hmm. inside Adrian's work. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm not alone. There are, there are folks who are, who we are on the mm-hmm. same fractal, mm-hmm. you know, interested in moving in the same direction that, so right now I'm so grateful to like live in a time where, where I see myself inside of people mm-hmm. that I think are brilliant. Right. It was like, oh, that must say something about me then. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's been, that's been what's been really rich inside of belonging mm-hmm. and that it keeps iterating mm-hmm. you know it just keeps iterating mm-hmm. Kimberly so there's a there's a couple of things here so I definitely can relate to Sonia about the performer part of me and finding other performers and people who love to watch musicals as much as I love them and love to be on stage and Throughout so much of my life, people would always just be like, Kimberly's so dramatic. And to find people for whom dramatic was not a pejorative, that was such, it just made me feel so good and feel so validated. And for so long, my mom would always be like, Kim, why are you making those faces? And I'm like, what faces? (laughs) Like, this is just the way that my face is. Like, this is just it. And so I... Loved and appreciate them. Um, when I was finally able to escape, I went to to college, and I will always say that finding a solid community of Black women changed the trajectory of my life. Being able to talk to them about my insecurities and about my fears, and even being able to just flippantly mention an experience that I'd had from third grade and having somebody say, girl, me too. And I'm like, oh my, I'm not, I'm not crazy. Like, this is a real thing that's happening. You know, just having a group of people to tell you that you're not crazy, that really, still to this day, those friends that I made at college are my best friends. I think that my <laughs> friends are my soulmates. We have a deep spiritual connection and I'm grateful for them every single day. Anytime that I've made a decision that maybe was outside of the beaten path or maybe a little risky, they were like, yeah, you can do that. Sure. You know, even if maybe like they had a separate group text where they were like, oh girl, I'm not sure what can, I'm not sure. But like to my face, <laughs> 
They were mm-hmm. so supportive. And for, honestly, that's all that matters to me. I just need you to tell me that things are going to be fine. Um, but also, in reading the work of Bell Hooks, I always yes. say I'm a huge Bell Hooks fan. I'm a Bell Hooks stan. I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with her from feminism is for everybody yeah. <laughs> to all about love to bone black to teaching to transgress. Mm. I'm going to just go mm. through the whole... <laughs> All of it, all the sight. Worth sighting. <laughs> all of it, right? But there is a line in one of her books where she talks about loving theory because theory makes her feel seen and validated. And that is exactly how I feel when I read her work. Mm. And it really animates the way that I approach this work. It animates the way that I approach justice and teaching and learning. So I... Could not love her more. Belle, please send me an email. Thank you so much. You know, she's going she to be in your DMs tomorrow. I cannot wait. I can't wait. Cannot wait. Uh, well, I feel all softened by both of these stories because I hear the love stories in them. And I think that's what it is. Like for me, I think about the times I first felt loved and felt like my love was being received, was worth it, was like honored. Um, so I definitely, um, I definitely felt that at college, I connected with friends at college who still to this day, we have a crew and during the pandemic, we've reconnected even harder. So like we've had this crew now for 24, 25 years or something. And during the pandemic, we've started back into a weekly call. And I mean, I don't know if we've ever even done a weekly call before. I mean, like it is like, I can't imagine going through the week without connecting with these these women who knew we all knew each other then. We all knew each other when we thought we knew nothing mm. and when we were ready to try anything. And um so meeting them, finding them, but I will say I don't know if I fully felt that belonging back when we were kids because I don't know if I knew how to feel belonging then. Like I was so like the outsider was my role. Um and I felt like mm-hmm. deep belonging in scholarship. So I'm really, I was really feeling what Kimberly was saying about that. That and there was this line in in the in the book in the movie. I felt bound by my ignorance. The pursuit of knowing was freedom to me. And I I felt that like when I heard that, I had to stop, write it down, and be like, this is it me, it me. And what what resonated with me so hard in that was. College for me was where I started to really understand the farce of the American dream tangibly. Like that's where I was able to sit and study. Like I was, I had been reading Malcolm X many times. I'd done, but it was like to really sit down and be like, okay, go behind just these narratives you've been given for black history. Let's deepen into it. And I had professor Michael Eric Dyson. I had professor Manning Marable. I had these professors who were like, let's, dive in. So there was a belonging that my brain was able to find where I was like, I'm a scholar and I'm not an academic necessarily, but I'm a scholar for life. Like I'm Mm -hmm. going to be curious and I want to keep learning forever. And then I would say the first place where I was like, oh, full belonging, like full body belonging was this group called Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, um, which is it started by Denise Perry, and it's a bunch of Black folks coming together, mostly Black organizers, and studying at the somatic level, how do we return to our dignity within the Black body? 
How do we do transformative organizing? And how do we keep politically educating ourselves? And it was a space where I was like, oh, I can bring my whole magical tarot reading Octavia Butler loving self in and be fully embraced as, as this is also a part of the Black story. And I felt in so many other places, it was either I come in, but I leave all the quirk to the side, or I can come into the feminist space if I leave all the like hardcore Black radical thoughts to the side, or I can come somewhere. You know, it was like every place wanted parts. And that was one of the first places where I felt the wholeness that belonging can bring. And now that's all I want to do. I don't really fuck around with spaces that require me to compartmentalize. So now I'm just mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. it's all, and you know, it's ratchet television. I, I'm like, Kimberly, I want to check in with you about the bachelorette right now. <laughs> like I just <laughs> like, we need to, you know, but I'm like, I want to be able to enjoy my life and I want that welcome. That's a big part of belonging for me. My second year at Howard, I felt hard for her. A lovely girl from California who was then in the habit of floating over the campus in a long skirt and head wrap. Her father was from Bangalore. And where was that? I remember my ignorance. I remember watching her eat with her hands and feeling wholly uncivilized with my fork. I remember her going to India for spring break and returning with the bendy and photos of her smiling Indian cousins. <laughs> I told her, nigga, you black. Because <laughs> that's all I had back then. In my small apartment, she kissed me and the ground opened up. How many awful poems did I write about her? She was, to me, a galactic portal off this bound and blind planet. She held the lineage of other worlds in the vessel of her black body. I fell in love at the Mecca one last time. Lost my balance and all my boyhood under the spell of a girl from Chicago. This was your mother. I stood with a blunt in one hand, a beer in the other. I inhaled, passed it off to the Chicago girl. And when I brushed her long, elegant fingers, I shuddered a bit from the blast. She brought the blunt to her plum-painted lips, pulled, exhaled, then pulled the smoke back in. Watching this display of smoke and flame and already feeling the effects was I was lost, running, wondering what it must be to embrace her, to be exhaled by her, to return to her and leave her high. I want to talk about the belonging of love that weaves throughout life, those moments where you feel belonging and then it slips away. And then it returns. I just thought it was so beautiful to hear those love stories and think about that in my life. Like how many times I felt brief belonging or a promise of belonging um, in mm. inside of a love story. And I loved how this was like, and just because that love story doesn't last forever doesn't mean that it's not still a really ex- powerful experience of belonging. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, 
So what Adrian just said really reminded me of another reason why going to college was so important for me. I was always in K through 12, a great rule follower. And that gets you far, that gets you far when we're talking about most academic contexts. And there is a line where they were, Coates is talking about how school teaches compliance, not curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I was so good at being compliant. And it was not until I went to college where I could really explore my own ideas and go to professors, the people with all of the power and presumably all of the knowledge and say, I'm not sure I agreed with what you said there. Mm -hmm. And they really engaged with me. They didn't try to silence me or belittle my ideas or make me feel small. Like really being taken seriously in an academic context was also something that changed my life. So that's another reason. And I (laughs) I have a degree in African-American studies. So Shout out to all my black professors, particularly if we gonna give shout out, shout out to Evelyn Higginbotham. Yes. <laughs> Appreciate you so much. That's great. <laughs> yeah, well, I yeah. think that. <laughs> she was so firm and she expected a lot, but it was so gentle and and so generous. And that really made me think, oh, like that strengthened my desire to go deeper and learn more. And I don't know if this was true for you, but I also felt like being in the co- collegiate space after having been very good at doing well, doing things right, I was very rebellious in the co- in the collegiate space. And I actually like, that's where I did my first direct actions. Amadou Diallo was killed while I was in college. And that was the first time that I was like, we've got to stop everything. We've got to be in the streets. And I remember the first time of like walking into the middle of the street and trying to block traffic because I was like, we have to we have to take this all so seriously and um, becoming a part of student organizing. And we like kicked Dinesh D'Souza off of my campus. There was all this stuff that was like, Mm. yes, you know, like (laughs) I don't care what the right way is. And there were professors who were cheering us on, you know, they were like, yes, this is how we ended apartheid and this is how we will end police brutality. And it's so deep to me how long we've been in the same fight. But college for me was that, awakening place where it's like there's community, there's scholarship, there's solidarity here. Mm. It's so interesting. I had such a different college experience uh-huh. and, 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 and it's, you know, it, I think it speaks to the, like, what, what can be afforded and then what gets stolen uh-huh. inside of these systems of blackness. Right. So when, when I went to college, you know, I was, um, I was coming off of living in a group home, transitional living mm. program for young people because my housing was unstable. And then I went to school and then my financial aid fell through. And so then I had to leave and then I worked three jobs and then I went back. And so college for me was survive. It was how do I play this game so I can get out of this shit? Right. I don't want to like I need to figure out how not to be at the whim of this system. And so how do I play inside of the system so that I can get out, right? And it was interesting because it was such a, a juxtaposition, a hard turn from Sonia, the like musical theater major, you know, I'm, you know, when I chickened out of my audition at NYU because I was like, what, I'm not waiting tables, waiting for my big break. I'm already living in a homeless shelter, right? And so it was this really interest. So college was, you know, college was the grind. It was the hustle for me. It was like, how do I play this hustle? And then after that, 
there was something much, I, it, you know, I had to go through sort of like, what does, you know, what does, what does, how do I create some stability? What, what feels like stability inside of my life? And then to be like, oh yes, that is stable, but it's not what you want. It's not where your joy lives, Sonia. It's like, you're not, it's not where your vibrancy is. So now that you know what stability feels like, <laughs> now that you know what stability feels like, let's go fuck it up and be a poet. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's literally what that was. Yeah. It's like, all right, I got yeah. a job. It's great. I got a degree. Awesome. I'm quitting all this shit. I'm going to go on tour and be a performance poet. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Mm. And I also love thinking about like, what would have happened if you shown up to that NYU? I'm like, oh my goodness. Like the parallel lives piece is always fascinating to me. But I want to also say one of the parts of this that I loved was Ta-Nehisi talking about the blunt smoking, like the, the kind of, Chicago, Chile, like, what did he say? There was this whole section where he's like blunt and beer and falling in love with this person from Chicago and like that whole part of the story. And I, mm-hmm. I loved the erotics mm-hmm. of smoke and like talking about the erotics mm-hmm. of smoke. And I was like, I love sharing something like that with a, with a child, right? And just being like, this is all part of life. This is all part of the love stories I want to tell you. This is part of the true mm-hmm. love stories you need to hear about. And then that there was something about not being free that was a building block in each of the love stories. It's like, I think that that to me is a crucial part of black love is being like, we're going to fall in love with each other and love is going to be a liberating experience. But in order for us to do this, we have to be in a solidarity that we understand we are inside of a system in which we are not actually free yet. And our love has to be a way that we are also turning and facing that or, or not, but we can't be, you know, for me, I'm like, I can't be compatible with someone who's not aware that we are not yet free and we are trying to get free at all times. And I felt that come out so beautifully. I was like, that's such a good thing to tell a young person who is heading into the many, many ups and downs of love that it's like, you have a right to be angry and to love and to not be free, but to fight for freedom and to love and to smoke weed and to love. And like, it's just, I don't know. It was just profound Mm, to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that application to all kinds of love, romantic love, friendship, familial love. Yes, Yes, it's about freedom. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to chain you down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm definitely wanting to, that, what you brought up right there is such a, it's so powerful, that understanding of like allowing yourself love, allowing yourself softness, and how... What do you need in order to have the openness for that softness and the connection between feeling a sense of belonging at the Mecca that then opens you up to these different levels of softness? And I think that it's almost, um, it's it's like another level of what has been stolen from us is like keeping us from yeah. the love that we mm-hmm. need to sustain mm-hmm. ourselves to like connect with our humanity. And so I'm curious about how, like, what is your thoughts about like, how do we elevate love? Like, how do we elevate love um, in order to get our liberation, to feel that freedom? Um, So Sonia, I don't know if you want to start with your thoughts about it. Sure. Yeah. So the only, for me, I mean, it, it's the purpose of my work, right? Is that the access to love is to figure out how it is a felt experience internally. How is it, how is it that I give myself this thing that I, and that's, that is the, the curse of the dream 
is that it externalizes and then fabricates love. It gives you a faux love that you can only achieve from some external utopia that involves money and wealth and power, right? And so what does it look like to return to a love that is that is source? A love and and how do we how do we feel into that? My um pickled pineapple is is our our official name. My pickled pineapple, Kay Williams, um, talks about what is a black love and care ethic. It it reminds me that in order to access love, I need to be able to access care, right? Like if I don't know what care feels like, if I don't know what being able to rest in the midst of the turmoil feels like, and I don't know where to receive that from, then I don't know how to give that, right? And so I think the reason people have such a difficult time understanding love is because they have so forgotten that it is how they arrived here, that it actually isn't some new thing you have to like figure out from scratch, that it it is your source relationship to your being. You came here as love. You, When we think about, you know, greatest aunties, I'm not the greatest auntie, but I love being an auntie. <laughs> Nothing makes me happier than when I got my birthday messages from my nibblings who are like, happy birthday, TT Sonia. And I'm like, yes, I love it. Um, but those children are the embodiment of love. They're very clear about love. They're very clear about how much they love you, about how much they love themselves. And, you know, my reminder to people is you came here like that. You were them. You are not, they're not some anomaly. You too came here in right, in right loving relationship with yourself. And so the work is not to figure out how to become something. The work is to figure out what is the shit in between me and who I've always been. What's that? And how do I start pulling that out of the equation so that I can actually feel an embodied experience of that which is my truest self? Son, I have raised you to respect every human being as singular, and you must extend that same respect into the past. Slavery is not an indefinable mass of flesh. It is a particular, specific, enslaved woman whose mind is active as your own, whose range of feeling is as vast as your own, who prefers the way the light falls in one particular spot in the woods. The enslaved were not bricks in your road, and their lives were not chapters in your redemptive history. They were people turned to fuel the American machine, and it is wrong to claim our present circumstance, no matter how improved, as the redemption for the lives of people who never asked for the posthumous, untouchable glory of dying for their children. I love you, and I love the world, and I love it more with every new inch I discover. But you are a black boy. You cannot forget how much they took from us, how they transfigured our very bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton, and gold. You know, I'm 42, and I think that there's a way that it's like, how do you, how long does it take you to move through the colonial experiment 
and then the decolonial mm-hmm. process. And the decolonial process in- entails how you feel in your body, how you understand your yourself racially, how you understand your sexuality, and then how do you stop lying and how do you practice vulnerability? Like, it's all so complicated that I'm like, I can't, I'm not sure that what I currently am capable of when it comes to love was even possible without 15 years of therapy and healing and this and that Mm -hmm. and the other thing. And Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated Mm -hmm. by that because part of, I think part of the work of emergent strategy for me is how do we get in right relationship with change? But really it's because change is how love moves, right? Like the earth Mm -hmm. is always moving towards life, which means it's always adapting and always changing. And those changes are the ways that we are like, oh, we're in a natural rhythm. We're in a cycle. Nothing stays the same because love requires constantly changing and growing and evolving and moving along mm-hmm. and leaving behind the sediment and the soil and moving to the next phase of ourselves, you know? And I love how multitudinous this becomes in the film, that it's like, it's not just his one letter telling his love stories, but because it's widened into all these voices sharing it with us, and now it's widened to our voices weaving in, it shows like there's this tapestry of Black people Understanding that decolonization and love go hand in hand. Getting in right relationship with change and love go hand in hand. Getting vulnerable, even though we've been in conditions where vulnerability was not the wisest move for so long. Now we are at a place where we're like, fuck that. We're going to get vulnerable enough to experience real love in our lifetimes. And when I'm creating spaces now, I don't even try to hold Mm -hmm. a space where love is not Mm -hmm. possible in Mm -hmm. that space. So every time I'm bringing people together for anything, that's where we're going to start is sitting face to face, looking at each other, sitting face to face, heart to heart, telling a love story, being in a space where it's like, let's have love at the foundation of our organizing work. Let's have love at the foundation of how we live our lives. Let's have love at the foundation of anything we vision. That to me is that's what's available because of love, mm-hmm. right? And I think it goes hand in hand. I've said this for years as a like coach and supporters. I'm like, how you let people treat you in your job mm-hmm. is how you let people treat you in your personal life. It's how you let people treat you in your family. It all goes together. So if you start to, di- to, to require dignity in one place, it'll start to open up the doors for dignity in others. And I look at that, I'm like, if you see me thriving professionally, know that it is because I am loving myself well and allowing myself to be loved well. Know that it is because I have gotten into right relationship with my family and my friends. Know that it is because I'm eating my greens and my smoothies. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like it all goes together. Like the dignity, the dignity of love is all encompassing and it is an abundant thing. It has room for all things. So what you just spoke to, to me, is so much about those things that have been stolen from us that we don't often recognize as part of the oppression. Um, to me, something that I keep, you know, thinking about um, with our good sis, um, Trisha Hershey also always talks of the, of the NAP ministry is this idea of our imagination and how our imagination, our ability to imagine has been stolen from us and how hard it is then to kind of like to dream of other worlds, you know, to dream of what is possible. And so um, as we close on this, like thinking about our meccas and our places of safety, um, what are the things that have been stolen that you've reclaimed? Um, 
love now and vulnerability definitely being one of them I hear, but are these other things that we can almost like shine a light on and amplify and so all of our people can know to go get it. <laughs> you know, they might not know that they don't have it anymore, but like hearing us speak to it, they may know like, wait, let me go get that. Let me go get that freedom. I, I didn't know that was, yeah, you deserve that too. Yeah. The, oh, so many, so many things I had to go get, you know, like it, it reminds me of Intezaki Shange's, you know, somebody walked off with all of my stuff and it's like, ah, go get all of it back. Go get all of it back. Um, and so what's present right now is like, I went back and got my trust of myself, right? The places, because so much of surviving a world of violence and oppression is like the learned practice of betraying ourselves in service of what we, what we think looks like survival, right? And the process of going back and saying, I don't have to betray myself to survive, Right. And that I can, I can actually show up in my full truth. I can show up in my honesty. I can show up inside of my, in my raggedy imperfection. <laughs> and I can trust that that, you know, yes. I can trust that that is okay. And that yeah, I am mm-hmm. constantly to Adrian's point. I am constantly changing. I am constantly evolving toward the higher version of myself. And so I can trust that that's happening. Even when I'm, even when I feel real raggedy, even when I feel like I'm falling apart. And so that piece of trust is something that I've absolutely been actively going to retrieve. Um, my bot, my body, my literal body and it's, and it's ownership. It's ownership over a world that wants, that keeps, telling me what to do with it. And it has been telling me what to do with it since I was five, you know, like figure out how to have more hair, figure out how to have less body, figure out how to, all of these things. And it's, it is beautiful in my 44th year (laughs) to say, yes, (laughs) it is beautiful in this 44th year to, to, to take back my body and to take back its knowledge and to say, I actually know what, what feels right and good in this. I actually get to define beauty for my damn self and it doesn't have anything to do with whether any of y'all agree with it or not. Um, and the like, yes. And, and, and the level of no fucks given, I have gone back and taken all my fucks. <laughs> I went and got all my fucks and I brought them into the storehouse so that I might dole them out only when I choose to based off of what I decide is necessary. Yes, baby. That is what I've also gone back and retrieved. Yes. <laughs> what I have reclaimed is the idea that I'm worth more than what I produce, that I'm worth more than any accolade, that I'm worth more than what's in my bank account. I used to really hold tight Mm, to the idea mm -hmm, that I would mm be okay, whatever that means, as soon as I got enough stuff. And that's a lie, (laughs) okay? Because I got some stuff and I still wasn't okay. I I got some stuff and I was still in pain. And I was still subject to the whims of a very violent world. And so I have learned that my true value lies in things that are unseen. So I might as well, like Sonia said, bring my full Mm -hmm. self to the table. 
do exactly what I want to do all the time. Now, I want to be loving, right? I, I have to check myself to make sure that as mm -hmm. I am doing what I want to do, that I am moving with care and grace and generosity, but I still want to be true to me. I don't want to hold anything mm. back. I I'm done with lying. Yes. I'm so with you. I'm like, my practice is like 1000% honesty. And I was like, I'll practice it with one person and then others and then others. And I really mm. love this question about rooting in the imagination and reclaiming because, you know, my friend Terry Marshall taught me this, that we are in an imagination battle right? That we are literally living inside how someone else constructed the world in their imagination with their superiority complexes and their longing for dominance. And so it means that imagination literally is a spoil of colonialization, right? That it's like, or colonization. And I really have been leaning into the idea that it is my right to imagine myself in governance. And when I say myself, I mean ourselves, my people in governance. And I don't just mean skin folk, right? I live in Detroit. We've had Black people and everybody else in office, and that's not what I mean. I mean governance by people who are committed to radical liberation. And I want to always imagine beyond these limited constructs that someone created for gender, race, and how everything in the world would go, what is possible if we govern for who we actually are, how we actually are, what happens when we start to create um, something beyond the boundaries of this current American mm. experimental construct. So I'm a post-nationalist in that way. My imagination stretches beyond the now. And I want to name two things that I feel like I've really reclaimed. One is I recently read Alicia Garza's book, The Purpose of Power, and she really reminds us that imposter syndrome is a function of patriarchy, that it's, it's designed to make us think we don't have the right yes. to think. Yes. So one of the things I've been really reclaiming is I'm like, part of my decolonization process means that I have the right to imagine and to philosophize and to think and to create and to be taken seriously as someone who has experienced enough to offer something back and to teach. And I used to feel such imposter syndrome anytime I was asked to answer, to give an answer, even though I'm like, I'm drawing on 23 years of experience, but what do I know? Bitch, you know a lot. <laughs> so you know, and I stay in my lane, right? I really try not to talk about the things I don't know about. I'm not a pundit, but the things that I know about, I want to speak to them well, and I want to speak to them accessibly in ways that as many other people can understand as possible. And then the last thing I feel like I'm really reclaiming is imperfection. And my friend Princess Hemphill, mm -hmm. also the god, also the teacher, but Princess just offered this quote, perfectionism is a commitment to perpetual self-doubt. Princess said that right? Perfectionism is a commitment to perpetual mm -hmm. self-doubt. And I'm a Virgo, oldest child, hyperachiever. So hearing that was such a gift for me to be mm -hmm. like my imperfection, literally everything I've achieved in this world. You know, when I put out emergent strategy, when I put out mm -hmm. pleasure activism, mm -hmm. I went back and I could find mm -hmm. the typos, but I don't hear about the typos from other people. What I hear about is thank God that this came through and that you let us access it because we needed this. And I'm like, so this imperfect thing, it's okay. It's good enough. And I've really been sitting with like, how can I just do good enough and let things keep flowing through? Rivers are not straight lines, right? They are curved and they have rocks and they have rapids and all of it is part of the beauty of the river. And so I'm like, how does my life offering get to be as beautiful as a river, as beautiful as an ocean, as abundant as the sky, right? Um, so imperfection, is where the interesting parts of life are. And that's my, I'm trying now to like, how do I imagine inside of imperfect constructs 
a future that is compelling. Zion. When I was 13 years old, I had a major crush on a boy in my class. His name is Cleon. I would stare at him out of the corner of my eyes. I would pretend he doesn't exist if he would look my way. He liked me too. And sometimes he would write me small notes and toss them over to me on the desk. But I never responded. How could I? I would tell my friends that he would gross me out. I wish I had a mother that I could share my secrets with. Zion, I want to be the mother to you I never had. I don't remember feeling loved and I don't remember feeling safe growing up. I often looked for reassurance from others instead of myself as a result. It wasn't until I left home that I started to feel like I truly belonged. And I can clearly recall my soul shifting towards love, looking into your three-year-old face. You can tell me anything. I welcome your boldness, your maturity, and your kindness. My 13-year-old self is liberated in every secret you share with me. I want to keep you safe. I want you to have your peace. I want you to be happy. I want you to be loved. All the things I never felt. I want to be the mom I never had. I have and will always fight for you. I'm your biggest cheerleader, your advocate, and you're my teacher. Being your mother has always allowed me humility, introspection, and kindness. Zion, I always knew that my blackness was a gift and also a curse. A gift because everything comes from blackness, but a curse because we are condemned for it. I grew up in Jamaica where Rastafarians and my culture emphasize the value of blackness. However, the blackness taught to me was limited. How limited? There were expressions that were allowed and many that were forbidden. It wasn't until you challenged my perception of black expression on gender and sexuality that I stepped outside of a box I had carved around myself. It was then I reckoned that we are truly everywhere in every form of expression through our beliefs, preferences, desires, talents, and so much more. I've come to realize that often the things that we think makes us less than are actually the traits that make us unique and propels us to a higher sense of self. I take pleasure in celebrating my artistic capabilities and my ability to continually evolve as a mother, your mother. I learned tolerance that was never ever taught to me and I created a space in me that lives without judgment. I'm honored to be your Your friend friend and to share all I I am with you. From Mom. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of HBO's Between the World and Me podcast. I'd like to thank all the guests we heard from today. Kalita Garcia-Rawls, Adrienne Marie Brown, Kimberly Nicole Foster, and Sonia Renee Taylor as well as Ta-Nehisi Coates and Camila Forbes, whose work is the reason we're here today. And an extra special thanks to Bella and Zion Jones, the mother and daughter featured in this episode. Next week, the conversation continues. Join us again next Monday for Episode 3, The Future. 
HBO's Between the World and Me podcast is hosted by me, Susan Kelechi Watson, and produced by HBO in conjunction with Spoke Media and Domino Sound. Our executive producers are Elisa Payne, Nolika Radway, Keith Reynolds, Aliyah Tavakolian, and Brigham Mosley. Creative director is Kenya Denise, and senior producer is Alexandra De Palma. Caroline Hamilton produces the show with help from Goldie Patrick, Trey Jones, Alicia Force, and Carson McCain. Sound design and engineering by Evan Arnett, with original music from the film by Jason Moran. Our theme song is by Cone. If you like what you heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream the podcast on HBO Max. Thanks for listening.